Today, on a brand new episode of the Enneagram Journey. We've been taught how to remove, not not intentionally, but when all of us went through a police academy, mm-hmm. uh, four things were somewhat inadvertently removed from us, and that, that was um, empathy and sympathy, compassion, and vulnerability. And those are four things that I think every human soul needs in order to survive. to the Enneagram Journey with your host, the Enneagram Godmother, the relationship guru, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel. Today's guest is Enneagram One, David Thomas. I'm going to let David introduce himself and what he's about, but off the top, just go ahead and add the book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, to your shopping cart or your library queue. David is a husband, father, and therapist. He's the director of family counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries. Instead of me stumbling over my words for a few more minutes, just go ahead and visit daystarcounseling.com and raisingboysandgirls.com to learn more. You can find links for both in the show notes. You know you're also going to find a link to lifeinthetrinityministry.com. We just wrapped up two great workshops, Change, 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 and The Joy and Complexity of Fostering and Adoption. If you missed them, the replay is available and extended through the month of July. Also, beginning April 1st, you're going to find the application for the 2024 LTM Cohort Program. LTM offers three cohorts, the Enneagram Cohort with Suzanne, the Contemplative Cohort with the Reverend Joseph Stabile and the great Hunter Mobley, and the Family Systems Cohort with Suzanne and Dr. Andy Stoker. You can apply anytime between April 1st and August 31st, and we encourage you to do so. As always, thank you for your continued support of the podcast, Suzanne, and life in the Trinity ministry. Now, time for Susanna David. It was until the first one, and I have a tendency to talk with my hands, and it was here, and wow. I spilled a drink and broke the candle oh, all at no. the same time. Yeah, I did a lot. So of I bought him another one, like any good hey, mother yeah, would. Absolutely. And you'll notice he put me over here. <laughs> And you near his treasured candle. I didn't even realize I was this close to Will Ferrell. I put the candle on the side that the candle needed I to be on. I love that. Certain. My friend, David Thomas, we are kind of iced in in Dallas. And you got here somehow from Nashville, which I'm so thankful for. You know, I get close from a distance to everybody that's in my cohorts. Like, that's what happens in the room, right? It just happens. But there's something about some people who participate 
where, you know, I'm adopted. So, like, I can just pretend that I'm related to anybody. <laughs> so, sometimes there's something about a person, and I think, we, we must be the same. Like, we must be from the same dirt or from the same something. And I have felt that way about you for a long time. So, thank you for being here, for going through all that you had to do to get here, and for all the good work that you do that I want to talk about. And um, I think the best way for uh, us to let our listeners know who you are, what you do, and your, about your beautiful children and your wife. So will you do all of that? And, um, I, of course, you're an Anagram One, which um, is its own thing, right? So I'm trying to talk to both you and your voices today, and I hope you're listening only to me. Mm. <laughs> I like that plan. Me too. And I will just begin by saying before I introduce myself that it is a genuine pleasure to be here. And will you please always pretend that we're related? I love that plan of action. Absolutely. Do you want Uh, me to be your aunt? I'm not willing to be your grandmother, but I'll be your aunt if you want me to. Sister, I'll take any role because... I'll I'll start going my much younger brother. (laughs) It It is a delight to be with you. And I think the world of you and I would say yes to any invitation to come and be with you. So thank you for having me and grateful we can talk. And in response to your question, I am a son and a husband and a proud father and also a therapist. And I'll talk about my work first, then I'll save the the best for last. But I have been practicing as a family therapist for 25 years now at an amazing place in Nashville called Daystar Counseling Ministries. And our whole focus is just the pediatric population. So we serve just children, adolescents, and their families. And I work with this incredible team of people that I learn from every day. And we have 14 therapists on staff. We have five therapy dogs on staff. So I have both human and canine colleagues, and I wouldn't have that any other way. And as you might imagine, the dogs are hands down kids favorite therapists and we're all comfortable being low in the pecking order after them but it's just this really unique place that I've had the privilege of just intersecting with families for a lot of decades and we work in a house rather than an office so you walk in and we want it to feel as safe and comfortable when kids walk through the doors and so it's it's a really magical place that I've been thankful to be and in addition to the kids that I get to work with, I have three of my own, um, and they're all college-age kids. My oldest is a girl, and about a year into her life, we got pregnant for the second time, and we went midway through our pregnancy for an ultrasound and walked in the door and said to the technician, okay, we're really old school. We didn't know we were what we were having the first time around. We want to be surprised again, so please make a note, but don't tell us. We want to be surprised. And I can still remember where I was standing in that room when she looked up with this huge smile and said, I see two heads. And I remember thinking, then why are you smiling if the baby has two heads? Like, (laughs) that did not sound right to me at all. (laughs) We were that shocked. We have no history of multiples in our family. My wife had not gained extra weight. Her counts weren't different. Like, none of the indicators when you're carrying multiples were there. So it was this enormous surprise, which, Suzanne, I would say for me as an Enneagram one would be a point in my story where I'm as certain as I'm certain about anything that God scripted that specifically for my growth. Because I, my wife 
once said to me, like, you would have never agreed to three kids because two would have felt more manageable. Mm. And she's exactly right. And so we went from one-on-one defense to zone defense. It was mass chaos. We had three children. My my oldest was not even two when they were born. So we had three kids under two. <laughs> we had a Nissan Sentra and a Toyota Camry. Like, we didn't even have a car that would hold three car seats. We didn't have a house big enough, a budget big enough. And for someone who craves a lot of order, and control. I just see the gift. I can see the gift now. I couldn't see it then of, of God's great disruption to me that immediately, like right out of the gate, I could manage none of it. I mean, it was just chaos at all times as it will be with three babies under two. So they um, are three of the great loves of my life. And I've grown so much and married to this remarkable woman who is an Enneagram too. And I give thanks for that every day because she smooths off so many of my rough edges and and I think my kids are who they are in in large part um, because of who she is um, I, I I give fresh meaning to the word married up like that I, I give new meaning to that experience so incredibly thankful for those people and then out of uh, the work I've done as a therapist I've had the the privilege just to write some books and and get to travel around the country and talk about those and on a podcast and and just really thankful for the work that God called me into that's been more than I think I really could have dreamed or imagined. Okay, I have 401 things to say. (laughs) So um, the first thing I would say is that I do believe with everything in me that in relationships, because that's my context, God gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to embrace that the best of us is the worst of us. And it takes a lot of order and structure and planning and watching for the little things for a one to have three children under two. So I wouldn't want you to shortchange yourself in the mix that the two of you were in managing all of that. And if it had been three children under 10, I think God does the same work in setting the opportunity. I'm sorry, setting the table for us to have the opportunity to be better at being who we are. Mm. I had the privilege of meeting two of your children and your wife because you brought them to me. So thank you for that. And um, I think a place I want to start in terms of the work you do is this. Maybe two weeks ago, Joe and I had this aha moment where we had been for some time as grandparents of nine children saying about our children They're doing such a good job, and it's such a complicated time to be a parent. So I say that all the time. Joe says that all the time. But in this conversation, a new thing happened. And for the first time, I said to Joe, it's such a complicated time to be a kid. Mm. I don't know how I missed that focus, that point of focus, maybe because my kids are my kids and, you know, all the stuff. And I want to be the 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 grams who doesn't get caught up in discipline or any of those things. I just want to enjoy and love and ask questions and do all that. And so 
I am going to tell a story about how we found a therapist for our youngest son, BJ. He was a freshman in high school, and we knew that we needed somebody, and I knew one person to go to who was a woman, and I said, we need a therapist and we need a good one, and I think we need a man. And she said, I've got the guy for you. And the thing that makes him great is that he's a good therapist, but he's just a normal guy, whatever normal means to anybody. He's like an everyday guy. And I have since then wanted that for all children who need that because I think it probably saved BJ and BJ would agree and the therapist would agree <laughs> and uh, not everybody has that access mm. so the fact that you've written the books that you've written gives access to people who don't have access and I'm so thankful for that and my first question no I want to say another thing first we uh, raised our boys reading Leonard Sachs, who actually was very helpful. Our boys are um, 34 <laughs> and 37. Close. And um, what worked for th- boys who were that old when they were boys doesn't work now. Is that correct? I think there's some truth to that. I think so, too. And I hear so much chatter and complaining about boys who are not becoming men fast enough and correctly and in the right way. And as an Enneagram teacher, people come to me and talk about their parents but they come to me and talk about their children, and they primarily come to me and talk about their boys. Sometimes it's a mom who's in a tough relationship with an aggressive number daughter. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want this conversation to be all about your oneness, although I want it to include that. But Joel and I are mindful that we named this the Enneagram Journey, and we always want the Enneagram piece, and we're leaning into journey. Especially now that so many people are Enneagram aware, right? Um, So I know I've said an awful lot, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm open to all of your responses to that. I don't want to interrupt you, which is my inclination. So that's why I said so much before I stopped talking, and now I'm going to stop. And if you see me do this, that means I'm, I don't want to forget something. And if you see me like this, I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> that's, oh, that's where we are. I love that. And, <laughs> and I want you to feel the freedom to interrupt before you get to two fingers okay. because you know how much I love and value your voice. So I want it in this conversation as often as possible. But Well, and we've got my boy. <laughs> you know, we've got one of my boys in the conversation who I hope will be... Uh, <laughs> grace-filled as we talk about your gift for uh, writing about raising boys. Mm. Well, I'll begin 
by saying, I think there's incredible truth to what you said. And when I even was structuring, putting this, my newest book together, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, it felt important. I wrote a chapter called Foundation and Identity just to even talk about the very thing you named of just what does it even mean to be a male in this world today? Because I think if we take one step back and remind ourselves that one of the more common words attached to masculinity in this day and age is toxic. Toxic masculinity is a phrase we throw around all the time. And so I started thinking about if that's true, what must that be like for a boy, for an adolescent male growing up in this world to be thinking that a lot of people in the world, when they think about males, they think it's bad. It's bad to be a male and wanting to think about how could we cast a different vision for boys And as a father of sons, that's, of course, so important to me and a therapist who works with young men to feel this sense of being able to grow into something good and life-giving and meaningful in this world. And and I think I've long believed that we as males are purpose-driven creatures, like we're our best selves when we connect with a sense of purpose and feel like... I have, I have work to do in this world. I have a calling in this world. And so I very much wanted to camp out in that space in the front of the book before I moved any further. And just to talk about, we need to think about how we define masculinity in this day and time Absolutely. And, and to undefine and redefine that. And, and it's where it means a lot to what you said, because I think that has to be the first layer of bricks that we lay before we go any further and thinking about what the work looks like or, or the journey. And, and I think the Enneagram helps with that. I couldn't agree. I think at the age where you can learn what your number is and you can embrace that those lines that connect you to other numbers work and they work on their own or with your help and they have value. Yes. I'm all about, all the things that promote and set the table for and make possible equity in all things in terms of gender and all understandings of gender. I'm all about all of that. And I don't want all of any group of people to be lumped together and then judged as a group instead of individually. And there are white males who I believe need to learn a lot about moving over. Yes. Yes. And actually, Joe and I talk a good bit about the fact that baby boomers need to roll off of boards, sit down, and shut up Mm. unless called on. (laughs) I love that (laughs) so much. You, how do you as a therapist use the Enneagram when you're working with younger younger humans who don't know their Enneagram number. Yes. I would first say, Joel, that if, if you're a parent and you get in close proximity to me, you're going to hear about the Enneagram. Like you're going to find this woman's work. <laughs> you're going to end up walking out with a book at some point because I believe everything you just said. And I've experienced it. I've lived it. In fact, part of when you said a little bit earlier, I brought two of my children to you part of why I wanted my young adult kids to be a part of your teaching is that they are aware now at this point in their lives of how transformative this tool and your teaching have been for me as a father. They've heard me talk about it. We've given clear examples. And so because that's been true for me in my own life, because I have seen that 
countless times be true for parents I've worked with. You really can't get in close proximity to me and not hear about it. I think I talk about it every time I speak, not most times, because I believe it can change the game for families. And Joel, to your question with kids, you know, from what I've learned from you, Suzanne, I know that, you know, kids are developing people and it's not it's not ever our job to assign a number to any person, not a kid, not an adolescent, not an adult. It's every person's journey. But as they are developing people, you know, what I say to parents is you're going to see them drop crumbs along the way. Mm -hmm. And I love, um, when our mutual dear friends, Jill and Andy Gullihorn talk about it, like a hypothesis, like they were like, we held some hypothesis throughout our kids growing up. And I think that's a great way to treat it. Like giving them room to grow, giving them room to discover their own number, but watching for leanings. And, and even, even if you don't see strong leanings around one particular number, I think you can always see some leanings toward a stance with kids. I was hoping that's where you were going to land. What do you think, Joel? You're raising these littles. Do you, are, are you, at, well, of course, you know more Enneagram than most people, but are you leaning into that and thinking, I bet you're in this stance or this stance? Wouldn't you not have, I think we have a lot of fun with it. It's just enjoyable to, we'll just start with the, the youngest, sweet little Josephine. She is so aggressive. Like we used to think that like one kid was aggressive or, uh, a niece or a nephew was aggressive, and then Josie came into the world, and we're like, "Oh, this, this is aggressive," <laughs> and and it is, I'm telling you. And so then, when we kind of work from that hypothesis, like like you said, it's fun to see other things that we notice when she. This is a very thing. Maybe she got it from me, or maybe it's just her own deal. When she comes out, she's like, "Today is going to be the best day ever." And I'm like, "Yeah, it is. That is that's what I'm talking about. I, I've said that before." And it is now, you know, when we're talking about orientation to time, when we're talking about what's dominant with thinking, feeling, or doing, um, it's, I don't know, we have some fun with it. And then there's times when it's not fun and we don't understand it and the pieces in the puzzle don't fit. One of my favorite Josephine stories that for me says that she believes she can create the world into what she wants it to be is and I can't tell it the way Joel can but would you tell the the day that you started the day with there's good news and bad news and it took her 20 minutes to play it back on you you said to her one morning there's good news and bad news and the good news is I think it had something to do with school and the bad news is something and by the time you got her to where you were going she was saying to you there's good news and there's bad news oh yeah (laughs) she started that's that's her she'll walk in i've got she's four i've got good news and i've got bad news for you and so now that's how she talks to me the parent (laughs) it's fascinating because she's using his language at four to create the world hers the way she wants it to be it's a fascinating thing. And there are two other groups of three numbers where children do not do that. It's hard to know, right? It but is. you can get the stance. Agreed. So Josephine, we would never say, is withdrawing. No. Ne- never. Never. Like that. Those words will never be said about her. The only time she withdraws is if she's doing it to piss you off. <laughs> 
And there it is, dropping crumbs. That's right. And you think if you know that, I think you interpret it differently has been my experience with parents. Like you see the challenge differently. You see their energy differently. You see the need to please differently because you understand all of what we know to be true. That is how we operate in the world. And one of the many reasons I love this tool so much and I believe in it, every parent listening, you cannot lean hard enough into understanding your number and what that means first and then do some study on what might be there with the people you love yeah and you know you know that i teach that at the end of the day your your only job whoever you are is to be the healthiest person you can be yes and knowing what your number is and trying to be healthy and your number helps with that yes right well it has changed the game for me as a parent what you're one married to a two and then first child oldest child grows up to be a a two. two Female too, just like her mother. Yeah, what? Um, that doesn't sound awesome. Uh, can you can you talk <laughs> some to that? You you know what is true about that though? That is awesome. Is I I have long believed that I had a pretty big two wing, which I think I think having a two wing has helped me tremendously as a therapist. I don't think there are a lot of therapists who are ones. Oh, I don't either. And, and so I don't have some innate skills in place that I think are needed for the work I do. But leaning into the two has helped me in that space. Moving toward the high side of four helps me tremendously to sit with people in pain and so many other things. And so because I have seen all the good that comes from that when I lean in that direction and because I've seen, as I mentioned earlier, the amazing strengths my wife brings to bear in our family – I think there was a sense of excitement, Joel, for me to discover my daughter was. Um, and and I think because I'm just so bananas about my wife, she there are a lot of likes, the, the two of them. And because my wife has been willing to do a lot of deep work in that space too, she could model for my daughter what it looked like to move toward the high side of two and live in some different space. I mean, she's growing like we all are. But I've been so thankful for my daughter to be able to see that on the adult female that she trusts the most in this yeah. world and is in close proximity to. Um, it's very tricky, I think. I, now, I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, it's very tricky for growing young women to stay in relationship with their mothers. It's just very hard. Great. And I'm so aware that there's been not just Richard Rohr's work, but there's been all this work about the father wound. And, I, you know, somebody said to me one day, you you should study and write about the mother wound. No, I shouldn't. I don't have the background for that. That's not mine to do. It's a lovely compliment, not mine to do. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm wondering as we begin, uh, we start a new cohort today and you're a part of it, and it's the Anagram and Family Systems. And who knows? Who knows what we're going to be talking about at the end of Saturday when we finish our first weekend together. I can't even imagine. I, I'm so into this weekend that I, you know, I'm real into pens and paper. Like, that's my thing. I do everything by hand. And I, I, I changed what I was going to take notes on and what I was going to take notes with four times before I left the house today because it wasn't just right for what I think is going to be so important. So important. I've got a question. That's great because I don't even know what questions to ask. I have so many. 
right, so I've so that we have all the information. Uh, people that listen to the podcast probably know this about me. We got Jace is our son from Whitney's previous marriage. He is very to personalize it as Andy. He'll be here soon, as Andy would say. Mm-hmm. Personalize it. He's very emotional. He also he has ADD and ADHD, and I and I think just in general, since I met him, I've known him now for six years, six and a half years. His emotions are strong. So my question, though, what does it mean to be emotionally strong? Great question. Oh, man, is that a good question? Yeah. If, if I were going to give the short definition, I would say it's that you can name and navigate your experience. If I were going to build on that, I would say I was in a conversation a year or so ago with a dad who is a professional baseball player and a father. And he said to me, you know, David, it didn't occur to me until I was in my early thirties that my entire life as a boy and as an athlete, I have been trained to show no emotion and not need help. And it has served me beautifully in my career. Like I need to be out on the field looking like no one is affecting me in any way. And what has worked beautifully for me vocationally has almost train wrecked my marriage and my parenting. And I have had to relearn a different way of being in the world. And he said, you know, my experience is not unique because of what I do. Like he believe, he said, I believe most males grew up being told, like, don't feel, don't ask for help. Like we're supposed to have everything figured out. And so... I think being emotionally strong is relearning that too. Just understanding every one of us needs help and we're a better version of ourselves when we can name our experience. And there again, I think the Enneagram has so much to teach about what that would look like for a person who's feeling repressed and what that would look like for a person, all the different ways that I think the intersect, the Enneagram would reveal something unique about where that journey might be easier or harder for some males. And I think about, for example, I have two great friends who are adult men who are four males, and they talked about how hard it was to grow up being boys who did feel deeply and who could do those things and feeling like something's wrong with my hardwiring because I can do this so well in a world. And so all the challenge that comes on every side of that. But that really was my mission with this book was not just to talk about what it is, but more importantly, talk about how do we do that? How do we equip boys from the front side of the development all the way through adolescence to develop these skills so that they can do that? Because kind of back to the masculinity thing, you know, we as males lead some of the scariest stats that are out there, right? Fidelity, internet, pornography, substance abuse, suicide. And if you look at the common denominator in all those spaces, it isn't a man's attempt to try to numb out or avoid whatever he's feeling in some way. And so if we want to change those numbers and I very much want to be a part of helping bring that change for my gender, I think it's got to start on the front side. And it's, it's where I just get excited for boys of all ages. I had this mom recently say to me, I wrote a workbook for elementary age boys that goes with raising emotionally strong boys. It's called strong and smart. And she said, David, I bought it for my seven year old son, but I'm mostly using it with my 37 year old husband. (laughs) (laughs) That's fact. Isn't that great? That's great. Like use it wherever it helps and makes sense. That's for all thrilled. You need to do a subtitle for that. I, I had a little boy say to me, I took it to my grandparents' house over Christmas, and my grandfather said to me, buddy, I'm learning a lot of stuff Aww. reading this with you. And 
I was teary while he was telling me that. Absolutely. I thought, great. And his relationship with his granddad will look different. His granddad's relationship with his grandmother might right. look a little different. Right. So, right. You, this sounds a little bit like our conversation with Mike Alexander. Uh, he's a police chief, and he was saying, and he's been using the Enneagram in training policemen under him for a number of years. He's a six on the Enneagram. He's fascinating. I'm not going to get this exactly right. Maybe you can help me, Joel. But he said they have been taught, policemen have been taught, don't feel, don't have compassion. <laughs> and what, do you remember the third thing? I don't. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, that leads to the question that I have. A lot of things that you're talking about, and I love, I can never formulate the answer well when people are around. Or when people are asking the question, all it seems like all the different gifts and tools that are out there work so well together and just really incorporate a lot of the same themes. So when you're when you're talking right now, when you're talking about what, one of the things that stood out for me when you were talking was the importance of community. Like you can't yes. do alone community. Yes. And for me, that's a big thing that I'm working on right now and myself with in um, context of recovery. Of like, I gotta have the groups. I've I've just learned that the hard way. Got no matter what the meeting is, I gotta have the community and the group in the meeting. But in the same vein of that idea, you know, you said, "Oh, I took to my grandpa and showed him, and he's learning so much." And I'm using this with my husband more than my kid. You know, with recovery, we can't give away something that we don't have. Yeah. And so, I guess now my question is. Long, I'm getting more and more like it's just get, taking me longer and longer to get there. It's so great. Yeah, I don't know. People love it, you know. <laughs> Think about that. People love it. I know that I'm not where I want to be as far as emotional strength as defined by you. And so having the book, how can I work on it? What's the first step for the adults, not the boys? I think the first step is that it is for us as adults. I talk about how we can only take the kids we love as far as we've gone ourselves. And if boys, particularly, I love the way you asked that, Joel, because you're thinking about yourself as a father with a son. If boys can't see that emotions reside in the life of a man, if they can't sit front row and see emotional strength on the man that they trust the most in this world, it's going to be really hard to develop these skills. So I say that right out of the gate to parents in the book and the workbook, like it's got to start with us. And if you don't have these skills in place, that's okay. It's never too late. I say that clearly in the beginning of both as well. Like it's just never too late. We can start anywhere. If you're 37, if you're 77, turns out you can teach an old dog new tricks. I'm living proof of that. And so that's where I would want it to start. And I would also say, I love that you mentioned recovery because I give a shout out to recovery in almost every chapter because I believe some of the healthiest parents I've intersected with in my work are parents in recovery because they get the foundations of all of what we're even talking about, like understanding that I've got to learn to deal with life on life's terms and I have struggle and I need God and I need community. And if you get that part down, like, we're just going to ice the cake. The rest is is just extra. And so my consistent experience is that parents who've done work in that space um, are some of the most skilled parents in teaching emotional strength to kids. Well, can y'all talk to, uh, we've got a great example here of your two boys, Suzanne. And I'm so sorry I haven't read the book yet. Don't be. I, w- I will. Sounds like everybody needs to start with the workbook. <laughs> that's what, yeah. Well, that's what, this is, talk about a bummer. Enneagram work 
is going to be is a piece of cake i think for me compared to what the work this is more foreign to me and and i i do want i want it more for my son than for myself i know that sounds stupid but that's that's honest like oh man i have to work on this because i want it for him you know, like three sevens and eights just come to a stance workshop, and then they sent us notes. Why would I want to bring up feelings? Yes. Why, why would anybody want this? Yes. And already, in part of it, already have done so much work with because I love Whitney so much, <laughs> and so it's like, all right, I felt like I've done all this work that I'm still working on, but now there's a whole another bag of emotional cats I got to let out. To, <laughs> but to get to my question, you've got BJ and me right. as your two boys. You, it can't be the same teaching for, man, we're different. They are as different as two human beings can be. So how do you raise, how do you rate, how do you teach from that perspective? Absolutely. Well, can I tell a quick story that I think could speak to that? Man, you can do anything (laughs) that you can think of. This is the place for stories. I need to get a story, little sounder interlude. Okay. Here comes a story. I'll start working on that. That that I think could speak to the question that you all are asking and is such a picture of the differences out of number. So a couple of years ago, I was leading uh, elementary boys group, second through fourth grade boys. And there was a particular night in group where a little boy started talking. Second grade boy started talking about his mom and dad had just told them that they were going to get divorced. And while he was telling this story, his little voice started to crack and he was trying to get through it. And while he was talking, a little boy who I would have a strong suspicion was maybe two, maybe a four started scooting closer and closer to him till he was in the middle of this, the circle, like not even, I think aware he could not help, but get closer to him that by the time he's the little guy started, stopped talking. He just said, I remember exactly what that felt like when my mom and dad told me that was going to happen and you're going to be okay. You talk about it every week at group. If you need to, you all, it moved me to tears to watch. Like he's like an empathy ninja. It was fascinating to see just what was instinctive for that little guy. There's another little guy in the group while he was talking who laid down backwards while he was talking, who I might've wondered could be a seven. He was hands down the (laughs) funnest guy in the group. (laughs) always there for the laughs had had us cracking up 15 minutes before and then i thought it was so telling like you literally had to lay backwards it was almost like the emotion knocked him down and then there was a firstborn boy in the group who i uh, would say had some strong one tendencies who i noticed kept looking at his watch because i was think he was thinking is david remembering that everybody should have the same amount of time to get to talk in Welcome group to my world <laughs> There it is. Uh, yeah. I, you know, ones are all about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about how different all of their experience was around the exact same story and all that emotion. And so I think to your question, the work's going to look different. And, and I'm not interested in trapping that little guy who was a seven, but I want him to be able to be in the circle and absorb that and be a friend of this little boy who I know without a doubt he loved this guy and was hurting but didn't necessarily know what to do with that and that's okay and the guy who let's suppose might have been a four who's like an empathy ninja 
I don't want him, or maybe if he's a two, I don't want him carrying more of that responsibility than right. it's his to carry, right. um, or getting pinned to the ground and the emotion when he left, if he's maybe a four. And so that to me is another beautiful picture where understanding those things would allow us to teach the emotional skills differently and to honor kids in their journey. You know, okay, that makes sense to me why you'd be laying back. Makes perfect sense to me and why you couldn't help but keep moving toward him over and over and over. One time, Joel, when he was, I don't don't know how young he was. He was young. And um, he said, I'm never going to get married. I'm going to adopt boys. And these are the names I'm going to give them. And these are the things we're going to do together. And he... I think intuitively was saying, I'm going to create this world for myself where there aren't feelings that not feelings that I don't want to be around, not feelings that I don't have space for at all, but feelings that I absolutely don't understand and bless him. uh, And I'm so thankful for your work in his life at this point, because he had this brother who was, a four on the Enneagram, and emotional all the time, and big emotions. And he has a son who has big emotions. And he's saying, I'm hearing him say right now, you know, I've, I've done all this work on feelings with Whitney, and it's still not enough. i got to do some more. <laughs> yeah, that uh, young Joel that you speak of there was wise beyond his years. <laughs> Still so wise. <laughs> yeah. I think it was a very much just, let's just throw, let's put an age on it. Let's say nine, nine years old. That's nine-year-old, in hindsight, Enneagram 7, average nine-year-old Enneagram 7 way to look at life. I, You know, like you and the Reverend work on your relationship. You did when I was nine. Yeah. And work meant a lot of work and a lot of feelings. and And I could see that. And I was like, this isn't for me. You know, at that time, probably Joey was dating. And so yeah. we got crying older sister because boys are stupid. And I was like, this is all awful. But I'm a pretty great kid. And I want to have some <laughs> some kids to hang out with and spend time with. So we'll go that route and lose all of this. And, uh, you know, then you grow up and you realize that, that kids are a lot of work. <laughs> and it's not just <laughs> the marriage that... Uh, is hard. So, and there's a good chance in my estimation, which is educated, that Joel, two of Joel's four children, are fours. Mm. So that means that you get to do it again. <laughs> yeah. It, here's the thing I really like about the work that I've gotten to, or the things that I've learned from LTM and Enneagram work, whether they're fours or not, hasn't mattered whatsoever. Right. But being open to that idea and like with the hypothesis, being open to if this, maybe this is why, maybe this is why they're doing that instead of without pre anagram work, when people did things, I thought I knew why they did them. Mm-hmm. I looked for the logic in it. I looked for, you know, when I did that, it was because of this. So therefore you have, to, that's why you're doing it. Why wouldn't you be doing that? And it turns out, no, man, people do things for a lot of different reasons and it's usually not what i what i think and, and there are numbers that have no connection to logic that would be me early on when we started working together joel if i was sad or having a hard time he would say what's wrong and i would tell him and he would say mom 
that's just not logical. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I just, I, I know that the Enneagram is helping. And I hope what's coming from this conversation for everybody to hear is the Enneagram helps and you don't have to identify the number of your child for the Enneagram to help. And you have both said that beautifully, just beautifully. What do you think the role is of elders and other men in the lives of growing boys that aren't being filled? Great question. I would say, you know, thinking about you telling that story with Joe and his tears, I think I wish there were more men who were thinking in that way. Like, what does it mean Mm -hmm. to be, for Joe, for me, a white male in this world? Where can we redefine what that means and what that looks like? What does it mean to be a a follower of Christ in my masculinity and to show boys evidence? I think, you know, I've had so many boys over the years who've talked about their mom's faith, but not nearly as often talking about their dad's faith. And Joel, gosh, I think about the great privilege you had to watch sit front row and watch what that looked like on this man that you trusted so much in the world. And so I don't think there's enough opportunity for boys to see not just an emotional life, but a spiritual life. And what it looks like to put feet to that in the everyday would be something that I think first comes to mind. But again, back to the Enneagram, I don't think I can do either unless I'm figuring out a lot of stuff about what gets in the way for me in both of those places. And both of you are talking about that, about what gets in the way for you. And I'm, I'm stunned by the fact, and I'd like for you to say the sentence again because I'm not going to get it exactly right. I was like, I, I don't know if I heard anything much after that. When you said, what does it look like to be a man in the image of Christ? What's the other word? Yes. I don't know that I remember exactly what I said well, either. Well, it had to do with this whole emotional thing. Like, it was, he's talking about spiritual maturity as well, not yeah. just yes. emotional. Yeah. Yes. To have yes. an emotional and spiritual life. Yep, and I I think people either identify with what we know about the life of Christ. I think they identify either with what they get wrong or with what they wish they had but they don't feel like they have. And that's got to be uh, missing the mark somehow. Yes. Y'all have mentioned the, the term toxic masculinity. It's That word gets people going. Two-part question. Would the opposite of that be healthy masculinity? Is that the, the, the term or word for it? What is that? What, how would you define healthy masculinity? And is that different? Is that defined differently for one, different anagram numbers? And two, is that defined differently for different cultures? It's a great question. I first say, I think the opposite absolutely could be healthy masculinity. And if I were to give a short definition to that, I think I'd go right back to what we just talked about together about recovery. I think it's a man who can deal with life on life's terms, who understands I struggle, I need God, and I need community. Like That would be the best, maybe shortest definition, and I would have barred every bit of that from the recovery community. And I do think that will look, have a different expression unique to Enneagram number, and I think it will look different 
in different cultures as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if I were to think about that in my number, if I were to think about Suzanne, everything I have learned from you about being thinking repressed and the fact that as a one, I wake up every day with a default setting of thinking I'm inherently flawed. And then I have this voice who is looking for every opportunity to reinforce that for me all throughout the day. And that if I don't learn to develop skills to deal with being being thinking repressed and pull up some productive thinking throughout the day, like I could just loop and loop and loop in that space that is not good for my well-being. It certainly doesn't allow me to be the husband and father I want to be in this world and certainly doesn't allow me to sit with other people in the work I'm called to do too. So that would be just one example that comes to mind for me of where that's work I've got to do every day and I do differently now because I know everything you've taught me. Yeah. It's changed the game. Yeah, it's a different game, though, for every Enneagram number, which I think is what Joel's leaning into. And even after you get it out into every Enneagram number, then we have cultural differences. You know what it, what it means to be a macho male, what it means to be a male in a three-culture in Dallas. It's, a, it's just a huge question. And to be totally honest, I don't understand why we aren't talking about toxic females. They're equal in number. <laughs> And presence in the world, and was somehow that's being labeled as strong and great. It's because he didn't write the book uh, "Raising Emotionally Strong Girls." Oh, there you go. So. That works. I meant culturally. I don't understand why we're not talking about toxic females. Yeah. People are toxic at times. Yes. The thing I want to bring up for us to talk about for a minute: Joel and I recorded a podcast yesterday, day before yesterday. Doesn't matter. Yesterday with Corey and Shannon, and Corey and Shannon Martin for people that aren't on first name basis with. Sorry, read her books. I would say, but they have four adopted children. They have intentionally chosen to move to a different part of the world, American world, and live differently. And the one more thing that I would say about that is that one of the title, the titles of one of her books is something about falling free from the life I thought I wanted or something like that. Mm. Forgive me for not getting it exactly right. I'm sure Joel can add that at the end. She talked so much about community. And you've talked so much about community. And we talk here about community, about the LTM community, about... All all kinds of community. My heart hurts because everybody wants belonging and everybody wants their life to have meaning. And the places that offer community are falling away faster than we can count them. Yes. Yes. I was raised by a town of 5,000 people. Community. That's my story. Have we replaced the YMCA? Wasn't that originally kind of what, wasn't that a Christian for young, was it for, did it start for young males? Yes. Yeah. Has society replaced that? Because yes. I don't know anyone with the YMCA membership anymore. Yes. People at my dad's age get one every January to go work out and we quit paying it every March because we didn't go. <laughs> So here's another question, though. It's not just YMCA. 
it's youth groups at churches mm-hmm. because it's churches. Like there used to be young lions group something. Sure. There used to be young Shriners something. There used to be young Rotarians. Scouts used to be big, and there were lots of scout leaders, and they were housed in churches everywhere. I I don't see any of it anymore. I was going to say, do you have information? Just that, that talk about not being prepared. I'm sorry. Do you by any chance have that kind of statistics of whether or not you know scouts numbers have decreased? Dmla was another thing. Yep, I remember, and I don't know. I don't know anyone who does. I mean, I know they're out there. I know there are scouts out there. So before you start emailing in, yeah, we get uh, it. Yes, they're yeah. they're out there. But I'm talking about just those numbers shrinking, and is that coincide with this discussion? You know, of there needing to be a book raising mostly strong boys, which there is a need for, and does that correlate with the fact that community healthy community for boys is going away? I remember, and to make things worse. The pandemic didn't help with that. That's correct. Because after, I remember we were talking with Brian McLaren where we were getting really comfortable doing church from home. But I basically said, you know, why? Because he was talking about it being important to go to church. And I was like, I'm curious why. I'm not arguing. And he's like, because you need that community, that sense of community that you don't get from doing it on your couch. Yeah. And so a good thing for us to just ask for listeners to think about for themselves, they don't need to answer us or let us know, is where do you experience community? Yes. And do you do you really experience belonging there? And the bigger question in our context today is, where are your children experiencing community? That And, and this may not be important, so you correct me. I'm counting on it. But my question would be, where do your children experience community that doesn't involve competition? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a lot to say about that in this new book, and I couldn't agree with you more. I'm so glad you brought it up. And I even talk, Suzanne, uniquely about how we as males are competitive by nature and that if boys only operate in space, that is competitive. If there aren't other places, contexts, communities where he is not against someone but for someone, not competing but collaborating, that I think it very much very much affects his social and relational development, yeah. let alone his emotional development. And so I believe strongly in that. And I think to your first statement, I grew up in a town a lot like yours too, and the kind of meaning and community that I experience with you of just being known by those people, being called by name when I walked through the doors of our church and was or, in youth group and yeah i was called by name when i was doing something i shouldn't be doing absolutely too. i yep. once got called out from the balcony by the pastor i did too <laughs> i did too i got called out by the pastor and he said suzanne you're so entertaining for everybody why don't you come down here and entertain all of us and then he stopped talking no just suzanne, stopped talking no. <laughs> fascinating fascinating to me well there's being known well and you know for good or for ill Our children were raised by a pastor in a pastor's family, mostly in a parsonage and in churches. And that was community. It was community every time for us. Can I respond to your comment a little bit earlier that I wanted to go back to that feels so important, Joel? Yeah. When you were talking about wondering if those organizations, all three of us together, if, you know, they're just 
less present, and they are. I don't have the exact stats on that, but I do remember remember reading a stat kind of recently about um, how few boys were engaging Boy Scouts at this point. That was kind of one of the last organizations where boys would come together under male leadership in that, those ways. And I wanted to jump two steps ahead to say where I'm also seeing evidence of all of what that means growing forward for boys is that in 25 years of doing this work, I've never seen as many boys who are disinterested in getting their driver's license. I know. Front side of my work, I almost never ran across teenage boys who weren't just chomping at the bit to get to their 16th birthday and, and hit that milestone. And who are, and I think the pandemic only accelerated this, scared to ask a girl to a dance, like all these different experiences that involve risk of some kind. And where that's translating forward is, you know, at one point in time, the stats were 60% of incoming undergraduates were male, 40% female. And we've officially flipped the other direction. We're at 60 female, 40 male at this point. And where I am the first to say how excited I am that there are more girls pursuing education than ever before. I am concerned that this prediction is if we keep trending in the direction we're going, we'll be at 70, 30 at 80, 20 at some point, potentially in the next 25 years. And that's not to say college is the end all be all at all, but it is to say, I heard a brilliant African-American professor speaking recently, and he was talking about the percentage of males between 18 and 35 who are living at home. And he said, I want to be very careful in saying most people are assuming they're still working or they're in trade school or they're pursuing community college, that there's some path forward. And he says, these are males who are not, they're not working. They're not employed. They're not pursuing. Again, back to what we talked about on the front side, that foundational part of who we are that craves purpose and meaning. And that's my biggest concern. Like, how does that affect your sense of self? What does that mean on so many levels? If you aren't tapping into some of those basic things that I think are part of what God put in us as males. And so if there are fewer opportunities on the front side, as we're talking about, to experience community, to experience mentoring, to experience rites of passage, to experience purpose and risk in healthy ways, I am so greatly concerned about what that's going to look like 25 years from now in our world, what that will mean. Yeah, it's very interesting because, of course, as students and friends students of and friends with Richard Rohr Joe and I I don't know when he did all that work on rites of passage uh and males and rites of passage um maybe 15 years ago and that got our attention and I recently uh, you know five years ago was saying we're to a point where we only have two rites of passage left for males and this may not be correct but it's what I was saying and they are uh, if you're in scouts, getting a Eagle Scout, yes. that's a rite of passage because you have to go on the mountain and do something by yourself and n- learn all the five things that Richard Rowe was teaching. But then I started saying, well, that's gone now. So the last rite of passage is getting a driver's license. One of our grandsons absolutely has no – he's not getting one. He said, I don't want one. And his brother, they are also <laughs> – a four and a seven, which is very interesting to me. But his brother said they have sports in common, which is a different thing than Joel and BJ had. But his brother said to him, yeah, Sam, that's just because you're a seven. 
and you're just you don't want to have to have a job to help pay for gas or insurance so you're just going to mooch off of everybody else and sam's answer was yeah why wouldn't i so my thing is there's no is it correct that there is no masculinity tied to getting a driver's license to be in the one that's driving and to have that freedom is that correct is that what you're saying I'm saying I absolutely believe with you that that is such an important rite of passage for boys that allows them to experience independence and autonomy, all things they crave. And adolescents absolutely learn responsibility, even the piece of it that would be connected to, okay, and then I got to get a part-time job to pay for the gas and the insurance and the meaning I experience in work and the feedback I get from other authority, like layers and layers, yes, that are tied to that one experience that has so much value, I think, for boys. In addition to you know, the current stats right now are that one in three kids struggles with anxiety. And I think that's played a huge role in why a lot of boys don't because it's, it's scary. It is scary to go take the test. It's scary to study for the test and think I might fail. I might not pass it the first time around. Or if I do pass it, I might not make enough money to pay for those things. Or I might have my first accent. All of the risks that involves fear, that all the research around anxiety with kids, this is true for adults as well, that tells us, you know, in order to battle anxiety, every one of us has to do the scary thing. And the two biggest parenting mistakes when it comes to kids with anxiety is avoidance and escape. I see you struggling and I just want to extract you. Would you say that again? Avoidance and escape. No, the whole thing. Yes. So, the two biggest parenting mistakes that parents of anxious kids can make are escape and avoidance. So I see you're scared to get your driver's license. Let's just not take the test at all. I see that basketball overwhelms you. Let's just drop out of the sport. I see that you're crying on the way into school. Let's just homeschool. Now, hear me say very clearly, I think homeschooling is a great option when chosen for the right reasons, but not for the sake of escape and avoidance with an anxious kid. And so I want us always to be thinking about creating opportunities where kids can have a healthy sense of risk and learn back to being emotionally strong, learn to name and navigate fear, which we all three know is a part of being human in this world. How did we get to one in three boys struggles with anxiety? How did we get there? Everything we're talking about. Everything. Is that how we got there? When I wrote, uh, co-wrote Are My Kids on Track with two of my dear friends and colleagues in our practice, the stats were one in eight, and that was just a handful of years later. Pre-pandemic, we jumped from one to eight to one in four, and then over the pandemic, we went to one in three kids. And interestingly enough, girls are twice as likely to experience anxiety, but more boys get taken in for help. Because its presentation is often oh, really yeah. different. Yeah, you're yeah. Not supposed to be anxious if you're a boy. There it is. But if you're a girl, it's just feelings, and we understand. Yes, that. and girls, when they're anxious, get more perfectionistic and pleasing a lot of times, which is a teacher's dreams. But boys, a lot of times, it comes out as anger. Anxious boys in a classroom sometimes look like they have ADHD. They're restless and fidgety. When my brain gets hijacked by worry, I can't bring focus and attention to the equation. So. It looks more, quote, unquote, problematic, which is why more boys get taken in for help. But in summary, so many kids are struggling to the whole world. (laughs) You're so kind. I want you to talk to the whole world. Parents want to do it right. They don't know any of that. Yeah. I mean, some do. I'm not, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody. Good grief. Does everything that you said support this idea 
that is, especially if we take out economics as being a factor, then is the last rite of passage that's going away get, getting your first job? Because, some, you know, some people, a car was never right. in the cards for them, right. you know. However, everyone's, everyone's got to get a first job. Like that, that is really something you have to do. And if you're 30 and at home, and you're not, and escape and avoid is happening. Yeah. Uh, so is that, does that line up with what you're both saying? Oh, it absolutely does. And I've long said my dream scenario would be that every boy by the time he graduates from high school has had at least one part-time job, if not a couple. That is that practice context for all the things we're talking about. Yep. Navigating fear, experiencing risk, becoming responsible, learning to steward money. Not being in control. Like yes. All the th- things around suffering, you know, doing stuff you don't want to do. Yes. Um, yes. You can tell what Joel learned with his job. Yeah, man. Me too, Joel. You got to do it, though, because for me, there was no car without a job. That's right. And there was no anything. It's like, now you have a car and you have a job, so get to work. Yes. And and I still needed like an extra 12 years of maturing than the average person. So That's uh, not correct. It's pretty close. Well, and can I say this, too, to what you just said? I wrote this book a few years back on, on boy development. And I talked about how most developmental theorists agree that girls finish adolescence somewhere around 19 to 20. Mm -hmm. And for boys, it's 22 to 25. Mm -hmm. And I can't talk enough about that because I think to all we're talking about today allows us to frame the journey of development for a boy way differently and understand to your statement, like most of us needed longer needed to finish out at need to have the finish line be at a different place because there's just more growth and development that happens between 18 and 25 for a boy than it does for a girl and we i think do boys a great disservice if we don't acknowledge that important ingredient in the mix but to our conversation all these things need to be happening in that 18 to 25 space and if i'm just living at home with no job with no driver's license, with no opportunity for the things we've been talking about today. I'm missing foundational ingredients in my growth and development. Joel and I uh, both raised, Joel is raising and I raised boys who whose emotions are big. At times, when BJ was Jace's age, uncontrollable. What are parents supposed to do with that who who are trying to say, I got space for your feelings, but this, this is too much. This is going to harm you. Is there a way from your writing for parents to learn where the balance is and how, like, I think one of the questions that we've both been asking, Joel, that you asked, but a word we haven't used is boundaries. What what do we put boundaries around in all of this to try to raise emotionally strong boys? You know, it's interesting. I have a colleague who was counseling an adolescent girl years ago who was likely a four. And she said one day in counseling, she said, you know, I don't want to grow. I just want to be understood. (laughs) 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 I would suggest that you never say those words in the presence of two of the four children. And what's important here, we are right back to the beauty and the wisdom of the Enneagram, like knowing 
if you have a kid who has four tendencies, yeah. you would think, of course you would say something yeah. like that. And of course your instinct would be, I want to build a house and all these feelings and I never want to move. And I talk a lot in the book about helping kids develop what I call healthy outward movement, where I can take the emotion to something constructive and knowing that for a seven, it's, I don't really want to pay attention to the feelings. Let's just see if we can figure out a detour around for four. It's like, I don't want to move forward with the feelings that might be, I'm being speaking in general. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And then to the two, how can I pay attention to my feelings? Cause I'm too busy attending to the feelings of others around me. And so there's where, again, I would bring it right back to the Enneagram of saying that healthy outward movement is the same across the board, but it's going to look different in terms of where am I repressed and where am I dominant and what work do I need to do uniquely in that space? Yeah. Any image you want of this, this feeling dominant, feeling repressed thing between four and seven, they're as far apart on feelings as you can get is just imagine. I tell the story all the time about building personality on my boys by walking into church and saying to Joel, who's the introvert and doesn't talk, you need to talk more and saying to BJ, you need to shut up. But, but we could do the exact same thing and I can visualize myself. I don't know what words I used saying to Joel, you need to feel more and to BJ, you need to feel less. And that can't be raising emotionally healthy boys on either side. Yes. But I didn't have the book. You have to forgive me because I didn't have the book. I didn't have this book, that's for sure. But we got some people showing up for the cohort, so we're getting up close to it on time. I have a a question that requires a lengthy answer from the two of you. So I'm going to ask that. And then if Suzanne, if you got, you know, your a final question that you want to ask, we'll do that. Between the two of you and all your gifts and knowledge and wisdom, this is fun. This isn't a know your number whip around the horn. But for each Enneagram number a gift that a male of that Enneagram number has as far as has on board already to help raise emotionally strong boys. Does that make sense? It's a good question. question. So a gift that a parent, for is that what you're saying? Yep. For each for number any, would have male parent, <clears throat> male parent, male parent. Cause it's, I think we can all, it's great. I think anyone who's doing the work can point out their shortcomings in, in, what they're lacking in this job. Uh, but if y'all could help us kind of, Hey, you've got this on board already kind of springboard us. Yes. I'm going to lean heavily on you, dear lady, because you have so much wisdom in the numbers. Um, and I'll brainstorm around your wisdom, but I would say living in the skin of a one, um, I think a strength that I have on board, even when I talked about that healthy outward movement, being doing dominant, getting to the practical steps, moving forward is instinctive for me. And I think I, I bring a lot of that strength, vision, leadership, movement, I guess might be a, a encompassing word to my kids when they're struggling and get stuck and leaning into my wife's strengths as a two, I can sit with them in pain before I start moving forward too. I can be present with them and listen because I've learned a lot from watching her in that space. The thing I would add to that uh, is that as a one in moving forward, you insist that every step of a task be done correctly. Mm. And that means you don't get to skip any. You have to stick with something until you get it right. Not perfect, but until you get it right you got to just stay with it so i agree with everything you said and that's my little deeper movement what you got to say about dues i would say i have a 
colleague, one of my male colleagues is a two and watching him both as a therapist and a father, like it's, it's mind blowing to me, like his capacity for reading the room and, and saying, I wonder if you're feeling, you know, is masterful. I love to watch it on him, both as a therapist and a father. And it's fun for me to have seen a lot of two dads who bring that strength to the equation that I think is unique. What would you add to that? I would add that if we're talking about uh, emotional strength, then a a male who could model that, who's done some work, would be an ERAM too. Mm. Emotional strength being not that you just feel all the feels all the time, but that you have boundaries around your feelings and that you make space for other people's feelings, and this is the most important one. And I think twos can help you even though they can't do it for themselves. I think twos can help you accurately name what you're feeling. So they can walk a child, a boy, through what you said before, but any child, through what you said before uh, of um, moving forward, but walk a child through, are you really angry or are you scared? Yes. That is too stuff yes very helpful in dads getting underneath what's really there that's so true yeah yeah i met with a three dad and an eight mom recently and this dad i know that's a lot of energy we talked about that and this dad said to me i worry that there's not a soft place to land Mm -hmm. between the two of us for our kids and i said to him you can't know how rare that is that I would hear a three male say that. That's right. And and that was extraordinary. And so I think I would challenge any three deaths listening. You got to do some really good deep work to get to a place where you could recognize something and say something like that. Because you're, of course, going to bring leadership and strength and a lot of amazing things to the equation. But you got to pay really close attention to all of what it means to be feeling repressed and to be that performance oriented i talk a lot in the book about how much we as males naturally tie identity to performance right. you know even the question we ask every day like what do you do what do you do That's we right. don't ask anything about who you are and so i think three dads have got to do a lot of work to get to the good stuff that you can bring yeah there's a really good plug i'm going to make here for anagram work in the micah center and what we do because it's natural the the room is filling with people who are coming from all over the country and I guarantee you they're not saying to one another, what do you do? That is not the first question in this space because we know other questions to ask. Yes. And I think if you put a challenge in front of a father who has come to you who wants to do better and you can define and outline for a three father what success looks like, they'll do it. They don't have to be they don't have to define success. They're happy to let somebody else do that. Yes. And then really give themselves in in selfless ways to trying to live into that. Yes. So that's what I got for that. Yes. And for fours, I would say, Suzanne, I learned from you of the many things I've learned how hard it can be to be a four male or an eight female in this world. And I've had a a few young men over the years, young four males that I loved that I encouraged to go spend time with 
some adult healthy male force mm-hmm. that I trust and respect and how much I think it helped them to, we came up with like five questions they could ask them and then they just interviewed them and how much I think boys need to see adult men living in all the beauty and strength of that number. Because as I said, in telling that story, like you're, you're emotional ninjas, like it's fat. You can read things that a lot of males in this world don't even notice um, are happening around them but can also get pinned to the floor in that emotion and paralyzed at times too. And so I I have loved connecting boys who I suspect could be living in that number with adult men who are living well in that number. Right. The thing I would add to that is that um, when a four male receives help from a five wing whether or not it happens from the get-go or in midlife it connects head and heart and only a mature four man can speak to the challenge it is for a boy four to connect to thinking yes it's so hard it's so hard but there are ways that Male fours who are doing their work have figured out to do that, and they can impart that, and I believe that will save boys who are fours so much rejection. Mm, That's so good. That's so good. Okay, fives. I have some research in the book where I talk about what we've learned about how we socialize kids across gender from the earliest moments and how... Moms, when they're not aware, sometimes are working harder to control their son's emotional volatility and dads do more rough housing, but ask their daughters how they feel. And so I share that as we go forward, one of the things that we do to reinforce that is that we ask boys what they did during their day and we ask girls how they feel about what they did during their day and what it looks like to ask both. Ask girls, what did you do? What do you think? And what do you feel? And so I think fives who can do some great work and learn first to answer both those questions for themselves, here's what I think and feel, can do that in a really unique way, I think, with boys because they understand what it lives, what it feels like to live more just in that space of what I think. And then I, I guess I might also add, I just was thinking this, I love your thoughts on it, that I think five men could, I talk a lot about boys creating the space they need to work through emotions could teach them something unique about that, about preserving energy and creating space in a way that I can then work through the things I need to work through in a healthy way. Yeah. I, I would add to that. Uh, of course, I agree with all of that. But I would add to that that I, I don't think we talk enough, uh, and maybe it's because I'm not in enough conversations about children and their numbers. But, you know, the whole thing about fives having a measured amount of energy every day so do five children. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. It would be much more helpful, not only, for a boy who's a five, whose comfort is in withdrawing, and who is exhausted by engaging. I think male fives can teach those boys that relationship takes energy, but it also gives you energy. Mm. If you give yourself to it, it fuels you in terms of relationship. And I don't think boys who are fives know that language. All Mm. they know is 
I believe about themselves is that they are observe. That's not all they know. One of the things they know is that they are observers rather than participant mm-hmm. participants. And watching a five male participate can be the big breadcrumbs that show f- five boys how to participate and then experience for themselves what they get from that. Mm. Love that. Okay, sixes. I would say the six men in this world, I know a lot of six men who've done a lot of deep work and they have an incredible empathy. I think when you you taught me so much about, you know, the fact that sixes have as many fears as fours have emotions as I have critical thoughts. And when, if you allow yourself to do work in that space, I think it can bring about a deep empathy and compassion that some of the six men I've known who've done that have that in amazing ways. I have a sick son who has done a lot of work around all his fears too. And it's just brought up this really deep empathy and compassion in him that I love watching the way he uses that in the world. Yeah. The thing I would add to that fear in girls is almost rewarded. In my experience, when girls express fear, then the people around them compliment them on knowing to be afraid. And when boys express fear, then it is seen as a detriment rather than as wisdom Mm. from experience of that way of seeing. I am sad that we don't differentiate anxiety from fear in conversation because there's a big difference. And I think it's possible with male mentors and men modeling sickness I think it's possible for boys who are sixes to separate the two and to seek answers, not a fix, answers about anxiety and the counterpoint, which would be strength for what their fear is, rather than you're not supposed to be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's one of my favorite abuse lines. There's nothing to be afraid of. Well, then how come I feel afraid? Yes. Yeah, I'm ready for, I've been saying it since COVID started, I'm ready for sixes and nines to stand up and show the rest of us how to do this. Mm. I love that. Me too. I would say sevens. um, I want to say one more thing. Please. I, I also think that we do a terrible disservice to sixes as children when we instruct them to over, here's how you can overcome that fear. You're afraid of heights? Well, we're going to go up on the high five to help you overcome that fear. You know, I, I don't think parents intentionally do the wrong thing, and I think there's a difference in ignorance and stupidity. And I think there is a lot of ignorance around sixes and a lot of ignorance around how to be in relationship with them. Yes. And how convenient it is to dismiss them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm whipped up now. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Keep talking. No, we'll move on. (laughs) I would say sevens. I think um, we've we've already talked about the, the challenges of being in the emotion. But I think when I was talking about the healthy outward movement, your capacity 
for pulling us forward when we're stuck is extraordinary. And I talked about going to the high side of four, but when I'm on the high side of seven, my, my children would all three prefer I live more of my life in the high side of seven because <laughs> I'm my best self in that space. And I think I can pull that movement I talked about. I can do it with a lot of joy and gratitude. I'm not dismissing anything, but just a lot of joy. Yeah. yeah. My dad was a one who lived a lot in that seven space. And I'm, I'm, I'm just having memories of him that are really <laughs> lovely. I think we are trapped in a culture that is instructing us to create happiness. And joy is something that you can't create, but something that you receive. And mature sevens know joy may be better than any place on the Enneagram. Mature male sevens. No joy may be better than any place on the Enneagram. If we can quit, if they can quit responding to our desire for them to make us happy and instead share with us moments of joy, then they will have done a phenomenal thing for young sevens, especially males, who are going to get called out for being joyful for, for experiencing joy at this moment, you're going to the principal's office. For experiencing joy in this, you're going to the principal's office. If, if, if we could just get male sevens to teach that so that young boys can experience joy enough and identified enough that they don't have to keep trying to create more happiness. When, when Joe told the story about Josephine walking in and saying, it's going to be a great day. And then him saying, it is going to be a great day. And then he went immediately to, it already is. Mm. That's joy. That you is. can't create that. But you can teach to allow that moment to be enough. Yes. And I also think that male sevens can only model not needing more for young boys. Because we live in a culture of more. And sevens want to be satisfied, and they settle for more. And they can teach boys to understand satisfaction. Mm. That is so good and so needed, too. Yeah. I'm so glad you told that. I think eights can model loyalty and sacrifice uh, for us, male aides can in remarkable ways. And I think even when we were talking a few minutes ago about kids and anxiety, you know, one of the things we talk so much about in our work is you know, wanting to empower kids to believe they can do hard things and that we're always really quick to distinguish with kids. Like, it's not that you need to muster up more courage or find courage that doesn't exist in you. Like, God, put that courage in you. It's in you. We're just going to tap into it, and you can do these hard things. And I think eights call that out. Male eights, I've seen really healthy male eights can call that out in extraordinary ways where kids just naturally feel brave in their presence. So um, I would add to that. I love all that. But I would add to that that... I, th I think we don't count bravery as a feeling. We focus only on brave action. 
And I think sometimes boys just need to be able to feel brave and not have to do anything with it. And I think male eights can model that. Mm. You don't have to prove that you're brave. You get to just feel brave. Mm. You get to just know that you could handle this. Doesn't mean you have to handle it. Doesn't mean you have to be the one, but you could. And only in that context can I see men and boys figure out what's theirs to do. Otherwise, anything that requires bravery is theirs to do. And that's not accurate. Love that. And last but not least, nines. Now, Suzanne, if I could trade my number for any number, I'd trade it for nine. Oh, me too, in a heartbeat. <laughs> In a heartbeat. I That's know. the number I want to be. Oh, me too. Except when I'm mad at Joe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then I think, oh, brother. Yes. I don't want to be you. <laughs> All the male nines I know mm-hmm. in this world, they are so doggone likable. I have a nine son. He is one of the most likable people on the planet. And there's Joe's so much. Yes. Everybody likes Joe. Yes, absolutely. I'm worried about somebody who doesn't. And I think they bring. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> they bring all kinds of good stuff to our lives and they have their struggles like the rest of us do but you you've talked so much i've learned so much from you talking about how they see both sides which for someone who is very black and white right or wrong good or bad i mean i'm working so hard to get to both end and i have two male colleagues in our practice who are male nines and their capacity for seeing both sides is extraordinary I mean, even when we're staffing cases together, at times it's just, I watch them thinking deeply about all the possibilities in extraordinary ways that I think so honoring to individuals and to families that they can see that. And and I think they have a lot to offer. Me too. In that space. Me too. What I watch Joe model that, Unfortunately, I'm a catalyst for the unhealthy side of what I'm about to talk about. I love Joe so much, and I think he's so talented. I'm learning still. I don't do it much anymore, but sometimes I still do. I push him to a space of being seen. I pushed Jenny into a place of being seen. I I pushed my son-in-law, Billy, into a place of being seen because I love them, right? And Joe doesn't give in to any of my manipulative suggestions about why he should be seen. Like, uh, example, is the first part of the path between us. You should help them because you're bilingual. He didn't believe that was his to do so he didn't do it you should get your guitar and sing that would be so great if we like i would be inclined this afternoon because we're gathering at different times from all over the country and because of the weather we're kind of doing a different thing than we usually do for a couple of hours i would be inclined to think of ways that joe could entertain based on who joe is and the natural gifts that he has he doesn't want to but he doesn't act badly when he doesn't want to. He, d- he doesn't behave badly. And he isn't mean to me when he doesn't want to. 
he has a way of not doing what he doesn't want to do, but letting me feel okay about it. So does Billy. So does Jenny. I think if males could model that for their sons or for their Boy Scouts or for the young boys in their church where they're teaching Sunday school or or wherever, it would be such a gift because I think nines spend so much of their lives doing what they do not want to do and do not think is theirs to do because they're avoiding conflict with somebody who wants them to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we can't. There's nothing to add to any of that. We're done, <laughs> except for the thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry that we're up against it time wise. Um, so the dismount will seem a little bit rushed or different than other times. But I could sit all day just listen to you teach. I'm just so excited I get to go in that room and get to continue it on. Well, you know what I'm thinking is this year you're going to be here four times. We got three no more reason. times for you to come yeah. down. I will yeah. come back anytime. You heard All me right. say at the beginning. Yep. The answer is yes, always. All right. Well, here's what you have to say yes to. Okay. Next time, next cohort. It'll be like you, an open forum Q and A, probably. That'd be great. You come in on Wednesday, and <laughs> we'll record on it. Thursday morning. I would love it. Done. The I'm putting it on yes. the calendar as soon as I get up. I would love it. Awesome. Thank and yes, Joel, y'all can come to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday nights are busy for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you all again, and I hope you have a great day. And uh, looking forward to this cohort. I'm about to leave you too.